where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. Friends, we're just going to jump right in today. Uh, a continuation of a sermon series that began last week on words. And these are words that are worth visiting and revisiting that are part of Christian tradition. And last week, Amelia invited us to take a look at the word Messiah and Christ with the question, who is Jesus for you? And that question is still on the table this morning. In fact, it doesn't come off the table. So I hope you've had some time to reflect on that this week. This morning, we're going to look at the words salvation and redemption. And one of the questions related to these two words is, where do you turn for help and guidance? In the United Church of Christ, the phrase, God is still speaking, is a helpful touchstone when it comes to scripture, theological constructs, and the teachings of organized religion. It's also very helpful when it comes to words like salvation and redemption. They're words that are worth looking at and exploring in the light of a still speaking God. And given the circumstances of this past week, nationally and personally for many of you, uh, I hope that this time of reflection and exploration falls upon you and rests within you gently. Because I do think that's the spirit of our God. Generally speaking, Salvation is about the saving of human beings from sin and its consequences. And sin is another one of those words that we're going to look at in a few weeks. But for now, let's just think of that as missing the mark. I think we can all acknowledge that we miss the mark sometimes. The mark of love, that is, with love as our standard and what that means and how we do that. And there are consequences from that. In the first century... Salvation was, uh, a very popular belief about salvation was the theory of the atonement, which meant that the one life of Jesus was sacrificed for the many lives uh, of previous, present, and future generations. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult theory. Um, and it's not the only theory that this one person had to die for life to be redeemed, that somehow there was a debt to be paid. In the 11th century, the concept of deliverance from cosmic alienation or separation from God was introduced. 
So you see, like, even from the first to the 11th century, there's a big continuum of thought. The God is still speaking before that phrase came into being, even. In the UCC, which is a 20th century denomination, salvation is forgiveness and grace and eternal life promised to all believers. And I would say that perhaps even a more simple way of looking at salvation is reconciliation. If we had to put it into one word, the word I would choose this morning is reconciliation. And so throughout this reflection this morning, um, I've broken it down into three sections, and there's going to be a piece of music, a reflection, and some words from Scripture. We'll begin with a piece of music that's called uh, When Peace Like a River or It Is Well With My Soul. And this song was born out of a tragic story of loss. It was written by Horatio Spafford, who was a lawyer and a business person. And his wife and four children were on a ship that collided with another vessel and all four children perished in that accident. His wife was saved. She was hanging on to a piece of wood from the craft and was picked up by somebody else. And when Horace was on his way to see his wife again, he went over the spot where he was told the ship that took the life of his children died. And this song rose up within him. And I want you to hear these words because they seem unlikely given the context of what happened. Uh, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And the second verse, I think, is important as you tune your ear to salvation. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. The works of salvation are connected to the person of Jesus. The name Jesus literally translates as God is salvation. And it was after Jesus as an adult went into the wilderness and was baptized and then was moved into uh, another wilderness where he experienced a time of temptation in conversation with the adversary or what some would call ha-satan, or Satan, or evil. He was in conversation around matters of motive and power and authority. See, there are a cast of characters when it comes to salvation. It's Jesus and the adversary. It's God's spirit, and it's this one life that we're given here on earth. And in Jesus' first public address... He outlines the big picture elements of salvation in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, and he's calling upon the words of the prophet Isaiah here. 
when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. This is the big picture of salvation, that in his life and death and resurrection, Jesus lives. He lives these elements of salvation in his words and his actions and his acquaintances. And there's something even more deeply moving about this commitment that he made is that tradition teaches us and the life of contemplatives teach us that he did this for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for all who know his name. Not to be exclusive of other world traditions, but for those who take on the mantle of being a Christian, he did this for us, to show us the way. One of the important elements of salvation is uh, recognizing our limits and our need for help. I've always been comfortable with this, and I suspect part of it has to do with growing up around pools where we had lifeguards. And it was possible that at any moment, even the best of swimmers could need help. And so when I take that experience and I also place upon it my early childhood education in churches, I understand what it means to need help. It doesn't mean I've always asked for it. But I understand and am comfortable with that word, Uh, Savior, and I recognize that not everybody is, and that's okay. We don't need to uh, share the same language around that to understand that sometimes we all need help. And I think it's also an important invitation to take a look at what it means to follow. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Following for some can be very uncomfortable. Where are you taking me? What are you going to do with my mind? Don't, you know, don't try to change me in any way, shape, or form. Or, and I think some of that comes from the fear of being manipulated, which I think is a very healthy fear. Because part of our journey uh, as Christians or as a community of faith is to learn to distinguish between the voice of the Spirit and the voice of temptation, or the voice of the deceiver. Scripture tells us that the truth will set us free, but first, as others have said, it might leave you feeling angry or anxious or sad or afraid. But the truth can also be a huge relief of a burden laid down. The truth can also open up and leave space after that burden might be laid down for joy. And joy is an important piece of what it means to be led. It's not all up to us. We don't have to figure it out. 
This is not about working harder. This is about tuning in and listening for the works of the Spirit and seeing what we might be asked, what little small piece we might be asked to participate in. Now, I know that there's a common question in some Christian groups. Uh, This was not a part of my upbringing, but I know for some this is very um, normal, typical language, meaning familiar. Uh, Have you been saved? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I have to admit, the first time I heard this, I was very puzzled. It was like someone was speaking a completely different language, and I tilted my head like a puppy can do sometimes, like, what? What does that mean? And I know that these questions can feel sometimes more like a test than an invitation to conversation. A question whose answer can lead to dividing lines or those fences that Amelia talked about. It's a barrier that can easily lead to an us versus them mindset. Like, what kind of Christian are you? based on vocabulary. And I don't find that to be very helpful. And at times when I have worked with students of many ages, it's, it's not uncommon for students to come home from college having been asked that question for the very first time in their life and to feel confused as I did when I first heard it. And so it's a worthy conversation to see how to be a part of that question and how to formulate an answer. And what I've learned from conversation with folks who ask the question and folks who have helped me articulate my faith is that the simple answer is yes. <laughs> you know, that, that's a valid answer, even though you may have a different understanding of the question than the person who's answering, asking it, rather. And isn't that true? That one question can mean something very different to two different people. In the tradition of the United Church of Christ broadly, not speaking for everyone, and also as part of my childhood tradition, this question is really connected to our baptism because the baptism is, um, you know, the ritual point of entry. And let me read you the questions that we ask here for baptism. Do you promise to teach your child that they are wonderfully and uniquely created in the image of God and worthy to be loved? Baptism isn't just for children, but we're just going to use child for now. Do you promise by your life and example to lead them toward an understanding of the life and teachings of Jesus? So we start with the foundation of being created in the image of God and worthy to be loved. And then we move to the life and teachings of Jesus And then finally, do you promise to empower them to resist oppression, privilege, and prejudice and encourage them to serve in the world as a person of love, peace, justice, and hope? That's that verse of scripture that I read from Isaiah. That's the living out of that verse. 
of that vision, that foundation from which we live and move and have our being in the world. Now, friends, I hope you know, I hope I've said it enough, but I'm going to say it now. My journey has been far from perfect. But the introduction and relationship that was ritually affirmed through baptism has been my salvation. It has been my saving grace. It has been the cornerstone of my life upon which I attempt to grow. And I've shared with you before this baptismal cup. It is a constant reminder when I glance in its direction of that moment of baptism and how that moment is a lifetime of living. And I think it's fair to say that as we grow in our relationship uh, with Jesus, that initially that cup and its contents are very sweet. You know, like the grape juice that we drink with communion. There's a sweetness in that friendship as a child. And as life and circumstances beyond our control unfold and as we might reflect on it, the contents of the cup can sometimes taste salty with tears or sometimes bitter with the fermentation process that a wine can go through. But still, we continue to drink from that cup because it is in drinking from that cup that we are reminded whose we are and who we are and that life isn't always sweet. So that baptismal promise made by my parents and one that I affirmed at my confirmation is one that I turn to and return to throughout my life, a relationship with, at different moments, Jesus, the Spirit, and God. All three are one somehow, but I I get it without being able to explain it. And I want to point out that the emphasis is on returning, that moving away or missing the mark, it's ever so slight sometimes and it requires a gentle correction. Which relationships do you turn and return to? And are they relationships of the spirit? Or are they relationships of another spirit at work, a spirit of deception? And do you know the difference? Because the spirit of deception will take every opportunity to tell you that you are not worthy and created in God's image. It will take every opportunity it can to tell you that Jesus is just a guy and that those teachings don't mean anything. You can pick and choose as you want. It will take every opportunity to tell you that you have no place in justice and that The story of our world and our nation is a good story. And that people who 
have less are just not working hard enough and that there are no systemic issues that get in the way for people and that there are no privileges cast on just a few. I hope that's not the relationship you turn and return to. You can choose today to not return to that relationship. And I think that when it comes to asking for help and when it comes to recognizing a need for help, I have found the book of Psalms to be a very important voice for this foundational relationship. And in particular, Psalm 27 and 28, but I would love to hear which Psalm it is for you that helps you articulate your faith and your need for help. So I'm just going to read a few verses from Psalm 27 and 28. One thing I ask of the Lord, this I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze on the loveliness of the Lord to contemplate his temple. Of you my heart speaks, you my glance seeks, your presence, O Lord, I seek. Hide not your face from me. I believe that I shall see the bounty of the Lord in the land of the living. To you, O Lord, I call. O my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you heed me not, I become one of those going down into the pit. Hear the sound of my pleading when I cry to you, lifting up my hands toward your holy shrine. Blessed be God, for he has heard the sound of my pleading. God is my strength and my shield. In God my heart trusts and I find help. Then my heart exalts and with my song I give him thanks. I think of salvation as a process, not an event an ongoing process. And perhaps with a clear moment of beginning or rebeginning. Something that ends a chapter perhaps, like it was right then that I decided to get out. Or I knew I was in over my head. Or I hit bottom again. John Stevens, a colleague, wrote a haiku prayer that says, I am lost again. Even though I have a map, you find me again. And that's the blessed assurance of salvation, that God will find us again and again and again and again. Now, I haven't said much about redemption. uh, And simply stated, redemption is participating in the works of God. That's one way to look at it. There are many. And the theologian Joan Chittister said, the whole human community is waiting for each of us to redeem our unpaid debts of help and care and unearned love. In other words, the love of God is so magnanimous that it can feel unearned. That's what grace is, isn't it? Is when we are treated with kindness and care and compassion and mercy 
when it can feel undeserved. I don't think God sees it as undeserved, but it can feel that way. And Chittister continues when she says, Then, outcasts of the world, when we do redeem our unpaid debts of help and care and unearned love, then the outcasts of the world may also, like us, know the gratuitous love of God. Another way of saying that is, uh, as I have been loved, I will love. But I'm not talking about the unhealthy love that we want to pass on. I'm talking about the love of God when love comes through like grace, when love comes through like gift, when love comes through like forgiveness. That's what we want to pass on. I have two scripture stories for you here. They're not stories, but um, I think that they speak to this process well and what it means to grow into this process. The first one is uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 11 and 12. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. In the Gospel of John, the 21st chapter, 18th verse, says this just a little bit differently. I say to you, when you were younger, You used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Don't be deceived or misled by age in either of these scriptures. The young can be very clear and very spirited and very wise. The old can also still be missing the mark, still be misled. So it's not about age, but it is about the spiritual process that calls us to see anew. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It becomes clear that accountability and responsibility are learned and they increase with age. I think we hold people accountable and we give them responsibilities that are age appropriate and that that's not something that can just be lowered. (laughs) It's about actions and it's about thoughts. Think about how easy it is if, let's just say if you were to Um, have sticky fingers, and as a child, maybe you stole candy from a candy store. And you can learn to undo that behavior. There's probably some consequences around that that are going to be helpful. But the thought process that you can take something that's not yours is something that needs to be corrected through adulthood. Don't take what isn't offered is something that 
is a thought that adults and children alike may need to return to again and again and again. And it doesn't just apply to physical items, it applies to power and authority as well. You get how the nuances of that are layered. Redemption and this way of life, this accountability and responsibility is for the glorification of God. It's not the number of views or followers or likes, but it's about allowing God's forgiveness, grace, and new life to be offered through you as it is offered within you. And friends, I understand that healing and growth can be painful. And after what may feel like death, Jesus asks us to rise in peace. Realizing the ways we have been deceived or misled, betrayed by testimonies in our textbooks, the ways we have been misled as co-conspirators in the cruelty of colonization, doubters of our own goodness, deniers of our power and authority. We must take the necessary time for stillness and the Spirit's work at clarifying that for us. It can be so easy to see it in others. Salvation is an internal process that moves into action and life as we know it and love it. And we can't heal, we can't have this reconciliation without tenderness. And we can't sustain action without rest. And if we are to be about the work of reconciliation, we must invite God into the process. We must ask for help and guidance and celebrate the moments of clarity when they come. Some of you joined Amelia and I in a conversation Wednesday evening. It was part conversation, part prayer. Most importantly, it was just a time to be together. And some people remarked that, you know, what they said, they, they weren't being as articulate as they might have wanted to be. Some people following that time remembered a prayer that was very helpful for them. The prayer of St. Francis came to someone's mind as a very helpful prayer in that moment, a way of focusing. And I, I want to leave you with a prayer that you may not be familiar with today. Uh, it's a prayer for the decade of nonviolence. It's from Pax Christi. It's old now, but it's a good one. I bow to the sacred in all creation. May my spirit fill the world with beauty and wonder. May my mind seek truth with humility and openness. May my heart forgive without limit. 
May my love for friend, enemy, and outcast be without measure. May my needs be few and my living simple. May my actions bear witness to the suffering of others. May my hands never harm a living being. May my steps stay on the journey of justice. May my tongue speak for those who are poor without fear of the powerful. May my prayers rise with patient discontent until no person is hungry. May my life's work be a passion for reconciliation and nonviolence. May my soul rejoice in small glimmers of joy. May my imagination overcome despair with new possibility. And may I risk reputation, comfort, and security to share this hope with children.